Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Michael Johnston, and this is another episode of New Books in Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. And today I have Dr. Jennifer M. Randalls, who is a chair and associate professor in the sociology department at California State University, Fresno. Today we will be discussing Essential Dads, the Inequality and Politics of Fathering, a book published in 2020 by University of California Press. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Randalls. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So could you um, start off maybe telling uh, telling me and the rest of the audience how you uh, decided to pursue this this research on fatherhood and parenting? Yeah, absolutely. So I appreciated the, the detail that you provided in the intro because it's a nice segue into how Essential Dads came to be. So for my dissertation at UC Berkeley, I wanted to study marriage education programs. And that goes all the way back actually to an honors project I did as an undergrad on welfare reform in the 1990s. I was very interested in the change uh, to you know, requiring work requirements for welfare recipients and how that was just reinforcing um, a lot of, quite frankly, kind of bad stereotypes about those who are in need of welfare, that they just need to work harder, um, that work is, you know, the primary way to get people out of poverty. Um, And as part of that welfare reform policy in 1996, which has a very interesting title, um, the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act, that is a mouthful. Say that three times fast. <laughs> well, I've said it a few times. Um, but personal responsibility, right? Um, it, it was a 1996 law, a big overhaul, the biggest overhaul of welfare policy uh, in decades. And there were two provisions in that policy. One was promoting marriage as a way of uh, preventing poverty. Uh, and the other was about promoting uh, what the policy called responsible fatherhood and responsible parenting. And so for my dissertation, which eventually became my first book, Proposing Prosperity, that really looked at the marriage education part of welfare reform and the hundreds of programs across the country that the federal government uh, had funded, uh, what are were called and still are healthy marriage programs. Marriage promotion, uh, the language has really fallen out of favor because a lot of people critique the idea that these programs were about just telling poor people they should get married to solve their poverty. And and that's certainly true. Um, I'm an ethnographer, mostly, and I studied a lot of these marriage education programs. And that became the first book, Proposing Prosperity. And so when I was wrapping up that book, uh, I realized that not too far away from where I was living, the federal government had just funded uh, a type of program that was um, the other provision, the responsible fatherhood provision. And so I thought to myself, this is really going to be a sequel to that first book. So Essential Dads looked at the responsible fatherhood uh, part of that big welfare overhaul policy in 1996. And uh, with this, with your study of policy, 
uh, what did you find its role in the hardening of parent, uh, parenting roles or gender roles that are socialized and reinforced to both men and women prior to them becoming parents? Yeah, that's a great question, Michael, that really gets at the heart of what Essential Dads is about. Um, so even the title of the policy provision, right? This idea of, of responsible fathering uh, and what that implies about um, how we target uh, fathering through policy, right? The idea that policy should focus on helping men become more responsible fathers. The implication there being that, you know, they're not as involved in their children's lives perhaps as they could be because they're irresponsible. Um, and so even, you know, even the language of the policy, um, really, I think, reflects some of the assumptions that have been built into our welfare and family policies for, for decades, um, that, that men, fathers especially, um, need you know, policy mandates to, say, pay their child support or be economic providers for their children. Um, and policy in the U.S., welfare policy, has really largely targeted uh, fathers as breadwinners, as economic providers. And I think one of the really interesting things about this policy is, and especially the way it was implemented on the ground, which is what Essential Dads really looks at. So to back up a little bit, the Essential Dads looks, it was a two-year study. It looks specifically um, at one of these federally funded responsible fatherhood programs. And I attended some of their fathering classes. I interviewed 10 of their staff. Uh, and most importantly, I interviewed and conducted focus groups with 64 uh, very low-income men of color who participated in this program over a two-year period to really understand uh, what it was like for them to go through this program, what they were getting out of it. And I call this program, the pseudonym I give it is, is DADS. Um, and DADS, much like um, uh, you know, responsible fatherhood programs across the country were really focused on uh, providing uh, marginalized men with uh, opportunities to finish school, finish high school, uh, get paid work or paid vocational training and take fathering classes as a way of helping them become more involved in their children's lives. And it's interesting because it's, it's a really um, fascinating case of how a lot of parenting policy does target fathers, specifically as men. Uh, just as an example, one of the primary messages that came through in this program and uh, from a lot of uh, responsible fatherhood programs and, and things people write about the policy is that um, the justification for a responsible fatherhood policy is that we have to recognize the importance of fathers as men in children's lives that uh, there's something unique or you know, essential about a man specifically as a parent above and beyond, um, or not maybe not above and beyond, but certainly as distinct from what a mother can provide. And I think that's reflected in the language of the policy, this idea of responsible fatherhood, right? We don't have responsible motherhood programs in the same way. Um, and the programs in the larger policy that funds these programs is really about promoting the importance of fathers as men in children's lives. And I know you've got some questions coming up about that, but it's a, it's a message that I, I critique for several reasons. Yeah. And many of these men, we have this, this uh, term out there calling fathers who don't uh, economically support their children, don't serve that instrumental role as, as deadbeat fathers. But uh, mm -hmm. uh, the reality is that uh, many of the fathers who you interviewed, in fact, I don't know that there was maybe even one who denied the fact that they didn't want to be part of their children's lives. They wanted to be 
fathers and, and many of them said that they, they just want to be there. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, Michael. Um, and part of it too, right. I mean, these are men that have, have made the effort to come to this program, a program that is focused on helping men in a variety of ways through school jobs, parenting, education, you know, diapers, food, um, helping men become more involved in their children's lives. Um, and one of the arguments I make in the book is that, and, and other people have written about this, is that we have a really punitive, um, most of our policies when it comes to fathers, especially child support policies, are quite punitive. Uh, you know, they uh, a lot of our policies, again, really focus on fathers' economic role as providers. And when I interviewed these men through in-depth interviews and, and hours spent talking to them and really understanding how they thought about themselves as fathers, what their fathering aspirations were, what their um, fathering um, regrets in some cases were, um, and and you know what they wanted to be, the kind of dads they wanted to be. I kept hearing the phrase over and over again, and it was not a phrase that I included in any of my questions. This was coming from the dads themselves, which was, "I just want to be there for my kids." And I would always follow up with, okay, what, what's that mean to you? And it was very telling that uh, very few of the fathers thought that being there was about just being an economic provider. Uh, I, I think part of that is that our idea of fatherhood uh, across class lines and race lines has certainly become much larger, right? I don't. I think you would ask most people now, and the research bears this out. People don't think fathers should, you know, quote, just be economic providers. I think we we are seeing more of a gender convergence and men's and women's, moms and dads' roles. This idea that uh, you know both mothers and fathers. Um, want to and need to be both economic providers and caregivers. But I think this idea of being there has a particular resonance for very, very low income marginalized men. And I want to take a moment to, to really explain when I talk about marginalized fathers, just, just how marginalized we're talking about. So these are men who in most cases were living on you know, less than a couple hundred dollars a month, um, had children to support. So, you know, living in not only poverty, but but deep poverty, abject poverty. Uh, most of them had grown up in a very low income neighborhood. They come from, from families that had struggled with intergenerational poverty and intergenerational trauma. Over half the men that I interviewed um, had a criminal uh, record. They had been incarcerated, many of them multiple times. Um, they, uh, most of them did not have a high school diploma. Um, many of them were in the program in dads to finish their, their high school degrees. Um, and, uh, these were all men of color. Um, and so, you know, they were very astute. They were <laughs> very, um, well aware of, of how the world looked at them. And, and they talked a lot about being labeled as deadbeat fathers and they uh, really challenged that. And it was one of the reasons that they came to the program because it was a space where people didn't look at them as deadbeats. People saw them first and foremost as committed dads, as uh, fathers who were trying to be there for their kids and be there certainly financially. They knew that their children needed financial resources. The moms of their kids needed help money-wise. But they wanted to do everything else. They wanted to be there to tuck them in bed at night. They wanted to provide diapers. They wanted to diaper, you know, put those diapers on, take those diapers off. They wanted to feed their kids, read stories to their kids, take their kids to school. 
And so this being there idea, um, I talk about, you know, the means to and meanings of being there. That for dads, being there was really about doing more than just providing money. But it also, um, you know, was really about what does it take to be there for one's child? And when we're talking about fathers that are this marginalized, when we're talking about dads who are struggling to meet their own basic needs, you know, I, I think from a policy perspective, we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to really try to prevent this quote? And I think this is a very stigmatizing, horrible term, deadbeat dads, because these were not deadbeat dads. These were dead broke dads and who were trying very hard, but um, often not being able to overcome all of just the overwhelming and, and overlapping obstacles that they faced. So these were not only dads that struggled to pay child support, for example. Um, these were dads that you know couldn't even afford a car or gas money in their car to go visit their children. Um, so I think when we talk about fatherhood involvement, we really have to consider the inequalities that undermine father involvement. Because we're not just talking about making sure that child support payment is paid. We're talking about men who you know, can you even afford a few bucks uh, to get on the bus for a bus token to go see your child, to go visit them, um, to provide diapers that that child's mom needs? Um, so I think from the perspective of policy, when we talk about involvement, it's not just, you know, it's 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 not um, values. It's not about valuing the father role and, and thinking that the fathering role is important. It's about are we really supporting our society's most marginalized men in living up to their fathering aspirations and really giving them support in being able to be involved in their children's lives. And one of the things that I really enjoyed about uh, uh, at least the site that you selected for this ethnography is the fact that uh, um, Essential Dads, the Dads program, didn't appear to be uh, one of those programs that uh, heavily focused on the marriage of the uh, participants in it. And that uh, it didn't solely focus on the economic uh, ability uh, of the fathers to pay uh, for child support, although that was definitely a part of it. Uh, would that be a, an accurate observation? Yes, absolutely, Michael. Um, glad you picked up on that uh, because it's something I was looking for, especially having just come off studying the, mar the healthy marriage programs, because there have been a lot of programs who uh, across the country that have provided both kinds of services. And some people argue that the best way to promote father involvement, uh, especially among low-income families, is to promote uh, marriage or, you know, to focus on uh, the co-parenting relationship, um, the relationship between mom and dad. And it's interesting because uh, looking back on my research with low-income parents and healthy marriage programs, a lot of the people who were attending these programs, and this was especially the case for fathers with the dads program just targeting the dads, was that these were not men who were wanting to, you know, necessarily strengthen their co-parenting relate or the, the, the romantic relationship with the mom. Um, they were certainly interested in strengthening the co-parenting relationship. But what was interesting is that they really prioritized the father-child relationship, um, which, is, which is interesting in the sense that if you, if the research on um, what's called the package deal, um, there's this idea that you know when it comes to men and their, their family responsibilities, they really think about parenting and marriage and uh, employment and home ownership as really part of a family package. 
and that they understand their fathering role is very much embedded in their marital relationship or, you know, their um, romantic relationship with the child's mother. And the research on this, I, I, I want to be fair, it really does show that uh, dads are more likely to be involved in their children's lives when they have, uh, you know, when they're married to and have a better romantic relationship with the children's mothers. And, you know, that makes sense, obviously. Um, you're going to see your kid more if you're living with the child's other parent, um, if you're on good terms, you know, if everything isn't a struggle or a fight, right, or a visitation, things like that. Um, but what was interesting about the dads in the dads program is that um, they recognize the value of their co-parents. They were in the program in many cases to, for example, learn communication skills to help them communicate more effectively, especially about parenting issues. But they weren't there necessarily to get help with their romantic relationships. And for many of the dads, you know, they thought of it as that that's a ship that's already sailed. Um you know, I, I, I don't want to uh, focus on that relationship because, quite frankly, if I focus on that, it's going to detract from uh, strengthening the relationship with my child. And I think what dads was really good at, a lot of things they were good at, was, you know, they've been embedded in this community for years. They've been working with fathers um, like the men detailed in the book for years. And they had a really good sense of the, the common family challenges. And they knew that when it comes to promoting father involvement, especially among these men, that marriage was way, way down on the bottom of the list of priorities. Because, right, we're talking about men. I, I'm, I'm recalling um, the father I call Keegan in the book. Um, Keegan was one of many fathers who told me when I asked him, you know, what's your biggest concern about fatherhood? And this is so haunting, especially in the wake of you know what has happened recently with uh, George Floyd. Um, he said, you know, my biggest fear is that I'm dead or in jail. My biggest fear is that I'm going to leave uh, to go get something, go get groceries or go buy my baby some diapers and that my kids are going to worry that I'm not coming home at night. Um, and a lot of fathers talked about the racialized aspects of this. Uh, and many of them, so I'm, a, I'm a white woman, many of them very pointedly said, and, and they were so on point and absolutely right. They said, you have no idea what it's like to be a man of color, to wake up in my skin every day, to get up every day, to try to get my baby milk, to try to get my baby diapers. I'm literally risking my life. And to which I responded, you're absolutely right. My experience, and it's interesting, um, I was pregnant, <laughs> visibly pregnant throughout most of these interviews. Um, which is something I talk a lot about in the, the appendix. Um, yes. And, you know, it was, it was really interesting because, you know, I embody kind of white, a woman, um, you know, middle-class, highly educated. I really embody all the characteristics of, of what people see as quote, good parenting. And these men, um, it was the opposite, you know, as they shared with me. These are, these are the people that our society looks at, right, as you, right, we talked about a little bit earlier, the deadbeat dads. And no one gives them the benefit of the doubt about their parenting. But what was great about dads is the program did. The staff, the other men in the programs, like I said, recognized them first and foremost as fathers uh, and not as the other stigmatized statuses that they so often encountered, right, deadbeat um, you know, uh, inmate, um, unemployed, you know, all these horrible things, these labels that we thrust on low-income men of color in our society. And so to be in this program and to have that be their primary status 
um, and, and not have the program somehow, you know, tell them, oh, if you get married or, you know, think about how you can strengthen the relationship with your mother. That wasn't the focus. It was really what dads were looking for. And the program was really about meeting the fathers where they were at. And these fathers didn't need marriage. You know, they, like I said, they needed, they needed food to bring home to their baby that night. And as an ethnographer, I think you bring up a good point, right? Uh, Not just uh, taking notes from what the uh, interviewees said, but also to, uh, take note of of the environment, the environment as your research lab, and, and maybe that uh, leads us to our next question of where was this dad's program located at? Yeah, so um, not to be too specific to to violate confidentiality, but Correct. it was based in Central California, um, and I will share that it was based in one of the poorest areas uh, of the country. Um, and it was in a part of a city that is a very, very low income, um, where there was a very highly concentrated racialized poverty. Um, but I should say also a thriving um, network of community benefit organizations um, that's, that, that have been working for decades um, to serve uh, the men, uh, like the, the men who found their way to dads. Um, the staff, because I interviewed staff too, um, these were people who had been working um, in the, sorry, it's my dog, um, the male person walked by, um, these were people who've been working with, um, with, with these men, sometimes these very men for years or men like them and had a really good understanding of exactly what their fathering needs were. Um, they provided, um, you know, support with uh, child support. So there were local officers from the child support enforcement uh, office that they partnered with uh, to come and help dads fill out paperwork. They would go um, and testify in court on behalf of fathers or provide paperwork um, so that fathers could provide evidence of their participation in the program. Um, and and they, they, they knew. I mean, the, I interviewed a couple of program managers. And when I talked to the dads, I said, you know, how did you find out about the program? How'd you get here? And, oh, I knew, you know, I knew uh, Melanie is a, a pseudonym for one of the program managers I use in the book. Um, I knew, I know Melanie going way back. And I knew if Melanie was associated with this program, that it had to be good. And, you know, she knew that I was struggling with paying child support and, and getting by and seeing my kids. And so she said, come over. And so what was great was the program was really drawing on a lot of longstanding relationships within the community um, that had been established. And I really did come to see the importance of that. Um, and just, you know, you mentioned, Michael, I think it's a great question, the space. Um, just having spent time on campus, and I described this uh uh, in one of the openings to the chapters, you know, they had a community garden on site. They had a play area. They had a kitchen. They had a basketball court. Um, and it was just a space, you know, before COVID-19 uh, shook everything up. It was a space where fathers could come and be with their kids. And it was a space where, um, you know, families were welcomed. And uh, it was it was um, just a place where, you know, walking through, you could tell that the men knew each other, that they, uh, maybe not the best of friends in all cases, but, you know, I would come to find out that the relationships that men form with each other were one of the most important things a lot of them gained from the program uh, because, you know, they came to find a source of support in their classmates and fellow program participants who had a real sense of empathy with you know, what they were going through in a way that not a lot of other people did. 
even in the circles in which you were discussing, I found it interesting that the fathers weren't uh, challenging each other or trying to one-up one another, but they were reinforcing the answers that were provided by each man in the focus group, which was uh, uh, was quite a relief. No, you're absolutely right. Those focus groups were so powerful. Um, I, I, I interviewed 50 men individually, and then I did, unfortunately, only four focus groups. I wish I could have done more um, with, with 21 dads, seven of them that I had interviewed prior. Um, and the focus groups were just the richest discussions because, I mean, I think a part of it, I have to keep in mind my own positionality. Uh, you know, again, there was a lot of social distance between me and the fathers. And, you know, I, I found some ways in which, you know, that was really helpful for establishing rapport, um, but some other ways in which, you know, and I, they, they handled it so brilliantly of, you know, you don't understand this. And they were right. I didn't. And, you know, they articulated, and I, I hope I did justice to their voices in the book. They articulated so poignantly what it's like being, you know, a very poor, um, uh, a black or brown father, um, you know, who uh, you know, their you know, big fear is that they're going to end up dead or in jail and that's going to prevent them from being there for their kids and all of the ways they understood it, money, but also care and time and, you know, being a provider of, of not only, uh, you know, actual money, but, but hope and a provider of opportunity. Um, and the fathers, it was just, it was, for lack of a better way of painting, it was absolutely beautiful and profound, like you said, of how they supported each other, how they validated each other's experiences, how they gave each other advice about how to handle all kinds of things. Um, interactions with coworkers and bosses, and especially, as I talk about in chapter four, especially some challenges with mothers, with their children's mothers, um, and how they just provided a space for one another uh, where they could be with similarly situated fathers who really understood what it was like to, to uh, strive to be a better father in their particular circumstances. And their need to be a father. Uh, I think each of their stories has a history with it. Uh, how did their childhood experiences have an have an impact on who they wanted to be uh, as fathers? Yeah, that's a really important question as well, Michael. Thanks for asking. What was interesting, and I, I didn't I didn't sample with this intent, but about half of the fathers that I ended up interviewing were uh, were raised by highly involved fathers themselves. Like dad's there every day. Dad is just, you know, the best role model that you could possibly, or even not the best role model, they, they were there, right? They grew up with highly involved fathers. Um, but the other half, uh, you know, grew up uh, either um, with stepfathers or other social fathers that they, they didn't recognize as, quote, their real fathers, which for many meant their biological fathers. Um, interestingly, those fathers <laughs> that didn't grow up with highly involved fathers um, went to great lengths to describe how amazing their mothers and grandmothers and aunts were, the women who raised them. So I, I think that was a really important um, contrast built into the sample. Almost It allowed for a comparison that I didn't really plan for. Because a lot of the messaging around responsible fatherhood uh, is that if if a man, if a boy doesn't grow up with an involved father, 
Um, he's not going to develop the same commitment to fathering, or he's not going to know how to be a father, right? He's not going to kind of know how to quote, you know, man up. There's a very gendered kind of ideology built into this. Um, that, that basically that, that men are lacking if they grow up with fathers, that they're going to, and, and there's quite a range here in how scholars write about this, um, from, you know, just very, I think, dangerously ideological, you know, boys who grow up without fathers will have a compromised masculinity. Uh, you know, this is where we get criminal. This is, this is what's wrong with our society. Basically every social, you know, a lot of major social problems can be attributed to lack of fathers in the home because, you know, girls don't, grow up learning um, how to you know, recognize a, a man as a future romantic partner or a man who's going to treat them with respect. It's very heteronormative. Um, and then boys are not going to grow up learning how to be good men. Um, and then you have a lot of other scholars, I think, who write about it in a much more nuanced way, which is um, yes, we do see some differences, um, pretty significant differences if we look at families where there are two parents um, and a lot of the research will look at two, you know, heterosexual parents, the mom, dad, um, and parents in which uh, children are, or households in which children are raised by single parents, um, usually moms. Now, the problem with this research is a lot of it hasn't controlled for parental gender, right? They're looking, there's really a lot of conflation there of, okay, well, we have a lot of children, uh, including many of the men who were in dads, that are raised exclusively by, by single moms or in many cases by grandmas, right? Um, and if we compare them to children who grow up in two-parent households, um, overall the research does find that kids who grow up in two-parent households do tend to do better on a variety of measures, economically, um, emotionally, psychologically. There's, there's a lot of research on this. Um, but what a lot of that research doesn't control for is, you know, yeah, if you have two adults who have, you know, that's two sets of time, that's two sets of resources, sometimes that's two jobs um, that allow the parents to provide more for that children. And, to, you know, <laughs> I've, I've never been a single parent, but I know people who are. I can't even imagine how hard that is. And a lot of we know that if you're a single mother household, you're more likely to be living in poverty. Um, and what a lot of our policy, and, and this looks at a lot of my work, going back to the, the first book about the healthy marriage programs, you know, a lot of the policy looks at this data and says, the answer is promoting marriage. The answer is promoting more involved dads. And I really argue in the book that that's, that's not the right way to look at it, um, that we need to really meet families where they're at. And create policies based on how families really are, not how policymakers think they should be. And recognize that a lot of the social problems that we're talking about, poverty, um, you know, low educational attainment, um, the fact that, you know, boys of color and men of color are more likely to end up in the criminal justice system. We know all of those things are the result of systematic inequalities and racialized poverty and the targeting of men of color and boys of color by the criminal justice system. It's not necessarily, and the research doesn't conclusively show that it's necessarily about the fact that, that these children didn't grow up with fathers in the home. So getting back to the point about, you know, half of the dads I talked to grew up with highly involved fathers and half grew up um, without highly involved fathers. You know, again, all of these men came to the program because they were struggling so much economically, hadn't graduated from high school, were struggling to find jobs, had gotten wrapped up in the criminal justice system. A lot of them uh, had, had a history of gang involvement. 
And so I understand that this is, it was not a random or, you know, systematic or representative sample by any means. But I think what it does show is that one, uh, men, women, you know, non-binary individuals um, can develop a commitment to parenting for a variety of reasons. And the men that I talked to were just as likely to say that they wanted to be good dads and they were in the program because they wanted to emulate not only their dads, but their moms, their grandmothers, their aunts, their uncles. Um, and a lot of the men said, I'm here because I didn't have that. I'm here because I want to provide my child something I didn't have. And so I think that, you know, uh, paternal presence or absence can be uh, the motivation for wanting to be an involved dad oneself. And I think that we really have to, you know, reframe the value of father's involvement. Uh, and it's not just about, uh, you know, getting men per se involved in children's lives, but uh, finding every way we can to promote all parents' involvement in kids' lives and giving them the support and resources that they need to be involved. Yeah, and that takes us to our, our next question about gatekeeping, right? The fathers wanted to be there, but uh, there were times that they were not able to be there. And it goes back to the traditional uh, views of, of men playing an economic role. And, th and that's not to say that the uh, mothers were poor parents for withholding their children from their parents, but it, it, it doesn't just go to the parents. Sometimes it uh, even comes from the, from the state determining whether or not the father would be able to see their children. Is that accurate? Yeah, I know you're hitting on something that's really crucial. And I talk about this a lot in chapter four um, that I, I call making a case to mothers because of the co-parenting relationships that um, and, and the men were in, like, like all co-parenting relationships are very complicated. Um, some are, you know, even if the parents aren't married or romantically involved, some are really cooperative and the parents could get together and make joint parenting decisions, work out visitation. Right. Um, these were fathers who often didn't have child support arrangements because uh, and I, I, I heard this is this has been found in a lot of other research. And this came up in my studies of, of the healthy marriage programs, um, quote, putting child support on a dad is often perceived of, as as a form of punishment, especially by the dads. Um, again, because they experience so many experience, the child support enforcement system is very punitive and understandably so. Um, and it's, it's never made sense to me that we punish dads who are not paying child support because they can't. There are certainly, there's certainly fathers out there, right, that are not paying child support because they, quote, don't want to. Um, but I, the research really finds that that's going to be the minority of fathers. And a lot of the fathers in most cases who aren't paying child support are not doing so because they're just choosing not to and they don't care about that child. Um, it's because they can't, right? These are, I mean, again, I, you know, Men in my sample made $200 to $600 a month. You know, that's just not enough to meet their own basic needs, uh, much less their child's. However, you know, in a lot of cases, um, uh, the children were, uh, mothers were the primary custodial parents of these father's children. And as much as I think we have to look at the father's perspective and say, okay, how do we, how do we stop labeling them deadbeat? and start really fixing the problem of the dead broke dad phenomenon. Um, but also how do we account for mother's perspectives, right? These are women who are themselves struggling with deep poverty, um, struggling to pay for all the things their children need. Um, and as much as I think we have to take into account that the fathers are you know, doing the best they can in many cases, mothers are still left to support these kids. 
And so getting back to your question about, you know, co-parenting challenges and, and this idea kind of, it's a very, um, a concept in the family's literature called maternal gatekeeping and maternal gatekeeping, um, have a lot of problems with this concept because it implies that the reason that a lot of fathers aren't involved is because the mothers are deliberately keeping them out of the children's lives. Um, we know that in a lot of cases, that's not what's happening. Mothers are doing a lot to <laughs> open gates. There's a lot of gate opening. Uh, a lot of mothers doing all they can to facilitate fathers' greater involvement in their children's lives. Um, and also, you know, I think you can't blame moms. Um, you know, if you're struggling to take care of that baby, to make sure that baby has enough formula and milk and a roof over that baby's head, and you're working two jobs and you know, um, and the dad's not providing much for whatever reason, um, you know, I could see how that would create a lot of tension and a lot of stress in that mom's life. And so you had a lot of moms who would say, okay, and of course, it's from the dad's perspective, I want to be very clear that I did not interview mothers. Um, but from father's accounts, you could glean a lot. Um, you know, dads would say, well, she says, if I show up with a pack of diapers, I can see him. Uh, and of course, from a policy perspective, I, I, I think to myself, we should provide diapers, right? If we, we really want to promote father involvement and diapers or a food bag is, you know, a lot of fathers really talked about it as like a ticket, a ticket to fatherhood. If I show up with a box of Pampers, I can see my child. And in that moment, yes, is that a form of maternal gatekeeping? Yes. But I think in that moment, you can understand both perspectives, right? And I think we have to understand the mom's challenges, but also when the dads say, you know, I, I don't just want to be looked at as a provider. One of the dads said, you know, she told me I, if I showed up with diapers, I could see my baby, but I don't just want to be the diaper man. I don't want to just be looked at as a paycheck. I'm, I'm more than that, right? It gets back to that being there idea. And so I think when it comes to, you know, gatekeeping, gate opening, you know, we really have to understand how policy in many ways kind of pits parents against each other. Um, we have a very stingy welfare state that is continuously dismantled in the United States. Um, and it's, I think, creating um, what I talk about in the book. And I, I, this is not my concept. It's a term I borrow from Kathy Eden and colleagues who've studied low-income parents um, even more extensively than I have. They call it the denominator problem. Which is, you know, a lot of these dads, they struggle hard to um, what they can provide, reasonably provide is much less than what these mothers need to take care of their shared children. And that's a problem. And I think when it comes to policy and the child support enforcement system and, you know, responsible fatherhood programs like dads, to be successful, to really promote stronger families and fatherhood involvement, we've really got to try to address that denominator problem. Yeah, and particularly having a court system that uh, tends to further promote the um, the separation of males and females by way of fathers primarily being viewed as instrumental providers for the child and, and mothers who are expected to play the emotional role. When um, I, one of the things you brought up in the uh, in your book is is the hybrid father, and uh, could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you asked about that. So that is a term that I, I do coin in the book. Um, so it borrows or 
builds on rather a concept um, that's been written a lot about by CJ Pasco, excuse me, and Tristan Bridges, their concept of hybrid masculinities, which is um, when it, it's it's really incorporating um, ideas of like subjugated masculinities and femininities. So kind of things that we typically associate with lesser, I'm using air quotes here, lesser men and women um, with uh, incorporating those ideas into our dominant understandings of masculinity, manliness, and what it means to be a quote, real man. And so I, I build on this and apply it to the idea of fatherhood um, to make a case about what what kind of idea of fathering and especially masculinity that programs like Dads promote. And so I, I think the program's great. Um, I think it was doing a lot of good for fathers. Um, I, I couldn't have written a book that said otherwise if I was taking these, these men's perspectives seriously. It did so much for them. Um, but the, the one way in which I'm really critical of the program and, and, and want to invite family programs and family policy in general to take a much more kind of degendered perspective or to really challenge these gendered ideas of parenting is that um, the program, it did promote uh, emotionally expressive uh, uh, fathering. Uh, it did, you know, promote the idea that men should be involved in their children's lives beyond being breadwinners. Um, but it, it, it didn't go as far as saying that men should be egalitarian parents. And, you know, there was a lot of language of, well, you know, cry in front of your kids. You know, that's really important, right? And, and, and I thought that was such a key point. This came up so much in the classes of the importance of children growing up to see men, their fathers, um, people of all genders to be emotionally expressive and have that be acceptable. But there was still this undercurrent of, you know, dads help moms out, help with homework, help with laundry, you know, kind of lighten mom's load. And so it was those messages that I thought, you know, we don't need to stop short of saying that, you know, mom, dad, you know, husband, wife, what, you know, regardless of gender, why are we still trying to kind of hold on, even if it's in a more tenuous way to these you know, traditional ideas of what a mother and, and a father um, is and, and the kind of things they should be expected to do for their children. And so I, I wanted kind of a more stronger critique of, you know, these traditional ideas of what a father's supposed to do and what a mother's supposed to do. And this idea that, you know, fathers should, quote, help um, mothers, or there was sometimes when I was getting this from the fathers, like, you know, oh, I'm a, I babysit my kids. And I'm thinking, well, no, you're you're parenting your child, right? Um, and so, I, this idea of hybrid fatherhood—it's the notion that um, you're promoting an idea of fathering, uh, a very gendered idea of fathering that is emotionally expressive, right? So, it kind of draws on some kind of more egalitarian elements, but still maintains that sense of, you know, to be a real man. You, you know, you're still a provider, you help women out. Um, and it kind of, it, it subtly reinforces a lot of gender stereotypes and, and gender inequalities in parenting by not fully critiquing, uh, you know, those, those very kind of gendered ideas of, you know, a mom does this and a dad does this. Yeah. And I think the uh, importance of deinstitutionalizing gender uh, in the family uh, opens up opportunities to provide a growth factor to socialized children to be um, be better family providers when they, they go into their uh, 
relationships in the future, whether it be uh, marriage or uh, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever you want to label it as. And, and it uh, really tears away at this gender essentialism that uh, you wrote about. Yeah, absolutely. And and that, that gets at the, the meaning of the title. Um, so a lot of, you know, the research that I was talking about earlier uh, kind of talks about dads being essential for children, um, essential in the sense that they're, you know, necessary, um, but also essential in the sense that there's some kind of quality or essence, a gendered essence uh, of men uh, that means they can make certain kind of parenting contributions that women can't. And, you know, I, it's a very problematic argument, kind of getting back to the inequality piece. You know, this message that the fathers were important in children's lives because they were men, which was an idea that was being promoted to these men in these classes, was very, very compelling. And I write about this a lot in the book because I think we have to sit for a moment with why that particular idea, what I call the essential father discourse, why that is so compelling for our society's most marginalized fathers. So here you have men who struggle the most, right, who are denied um, status as good fathers, as good economic providers, right, in the way that our society defines good fathering. And so to come and tell these men in particular, you have value just because you're a man, I think it's very powerful because they don't have other the same claims to value, you know, that white, uh, you know, middle class, affluent, highly educated dads do, right? Because you're talking about fathers that our society just tears down in so many ways, right? Um, and so this idea of being essential just by virtue of their gender is really, is so resonant. However, I think we also have to consider ultimately what message that sends. Uh, and this gets back to that idea of, you know, half the dads I talked to had highly involved fathers, half didn't, and yet they, you know, kind of ended up in the same place. Um, it's a dangerous message at the end of the day, because you have dads who themselves grew up in poverty. Their children are growing up in poverty. And I think the biggest problem with the essential father discourse, other than the fact that it's very gendered, very problematic, reinforces gender inequalities and gendered ideologies of parenting, is that it ultimately blames low-income fathers of color uh, for some of our society's worst social problems, right? Because if you are telling men, okay, you know, be involved in your children's lives, you have value, you're essential because you're a man, right? And your children, you know, it's important for your children to have a male parent growing up in the home. Um, this, the, the, the underside of that message is that, well, if your child ends up in poverty, right, then, you know, somehow it's, it's, all, it's all their fault. Um, it really blames, I, I think it's a very simplistic um, and, and it's a very, um, it's an explanation that really discounts how inequality and stratification work. You know, it, it lets it, it lets, quite frankly, capitalism off the hook. We know that we have racialized poverty because of capitalism and a low wage labor market in which, you know, white and affluent people especially are benefiting. You know, we don't have poverty. It's not that the children of color in our society are growing up in poverty because 
their dads, you know, aren't living in their house. Um, I'm not saying that that's not an issue on its own, but the way so often that um, father's involvement is often used to explain so many problems that children go through, I think can be a very dangerous message that, that just doesn't capture how inequality and social problems really work. And looking at the disadvantages, uh, the inter- intersections, or uh, looking at the compound disadvantage of the fathers, particularly in this study, uh, the odds were against them. The car, the deck was stacked against their uh, opportunity for success. Looking at things, every uh, everything from them having uh, been labeled felons to uh, being low income uh, to being males who had children out of wedlock and not being able to uh, be with their children and, and be with the, the child's mother. Uh, but these, these men were doing, I, I think doing everything right. Uh, they were going to this program and uh, they were making an attempt to better themselves for their children. I completely agree. And I think that that's really where the value of these programs come in And so as much as I critique some of the messaging um, that's being promoted in them, and I think that's very important, and I think we, you know, need to have some nuanced discussions like you and I are having now about what the best messages are, um, and that there is value. Absolutely. There's there's value in in any adult that cares for a child in whatever way, providing financial resources, reading to that child, you know, all the ways that, um, you know, a parent or any caregiver um, can just support a child. And, and I, I, one of the key conclusions I come to in the book is that these dads are essential, not because they're men, they're essential because they love these children and they're committed to them and they're committed to becoming better for these children. And, uh, you know, like you said, being in this program so that they can uh, enhance their own life chances, but especially their children's life chances. And estimates suggest that there are about 5 million uh, men in the U.S. um, that are much like the dads uh, that I talk about in the book. And I I make the case that if we are really serious about uh, inequalities, poverty, and, you know, our highly racialized, um, you know, system of incarceration, um, low educational attainment, all of these social problems that we as sociologists really care about, if we are committed to addressing these problems, we have to do everything we can to support um, the 5 million fathers in the U.S. that I really do believe are essential dads. Again, not because they're men, not by virtue of their gender, um, but because they're deeply committed to these children and making sure these children grow up with, you know, as many resources and as much love and support as they can provide. It'd be interesting to see um, 18 years from today, uh, how the children were, how the children are doing overall and and where they're at and uh, the relationship that they uh, have been able to sustain with their fathers. I agree. I would love to do that as a longitudinal study. (laughs) So what policy implications do you hope this research to have? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, And it's what I talk about in the the last empirical chapter of of the book. Um, I I think that we have to give fathers um, more uh, to be involved in their children's lives in all the ways they want to, to be there. Um, and I think that means not only financially, 
um, policy, you know, we, we, we need to stop, you know, you said this at the very beginning of our conversation, Michael, we need to stop looking at dads um, as, as just financial providers, as, as just, you know, employees and a potential paycheck. Um, I think we have to really look at dads as caregivers, as equitable caregivers, um, I think it really will require uh, an overhaul of our family and welfare policy to prioritize care in general. I think this is part of the problem with some of the gendered messages in some of these programs, um, which is that, you know, you have like there's some kind of difference between the care a mother can provide and the care a father can provide. And, and you know, there's not. I think there is great value in children seeing um, people of all genders be loving and caring and, and doing care work. Um, but the the reality is when it comes down to it, we just simply uh, the, we just don't prioritize care work in our welfare policy. Um, the policy, you know, the 1996 Personal Responsibility Act policy that I talked about at the beginning of our conversation, you know, it, it ever since then, we've just chipped away at the value of cash aid welfare benefits. We've required parents to work um, in exchange for benefits, often um, for less than minimum wage. And we just don't prioritize care and taking care of children um, as a legitimate grounds for making demands on the state and demands on our government, even though we know raising children is one of the most valuable things um, that we can do in our society and for our economy, right? I mean, we're, we're raising not just children. If you want to get really economic about it, we're raising future workers, um, and, and to be a little Marxist here, and, uh, you know, this reproductive labor is incredibly valuable. And I think we have to, to recognize the value of care no matter who's providing it. So I would really like to see in all policy, but specifically for these fathering programs, um, just a real strong valorization of care and uh, for validating uh, men or parents of any gender for the care they provide. Um, and, you know, I think there's a variety of ways we could do this, um, increasing, you know, the earned income tax credit, um, even just having a you know blanket child credit like many other countries do, that if you have a child, you get so much money for the state in recognition of the value of, of raising these children. Um, and so I would really love to see kind of these programs um, kind of be a contribution to a welfare state that values care more than it does now. Well, we are all out of time for our interview. This has been a lovely conversation uh, with you, Dr. Randalls. Uh, what are What are you working on now? What's your What's your uh, next project? Yeah, so that's a great question, and I always kind of joke and say I never select my research projects; they select me. Um, well, much like Essential Dads, kind of just came out of, and it it just seemed like that was the natural next research project. Um, the next project, the one I'm working on now, the third book is on diapers and it was inspired by many of the conversations I had with dads about, um, I asked them, you know, why'd you come to dads? And they said, oh, they give us diapers. And I'm like, okay. Diapers. Okay. And I was writing about this and, you know, I went to find a citation about what I would now know is called diaper need when parents struggle to get enough diapers, um, that their children require. Um, and there's nothing in our field. Um, and so that was the next research project. So I'm looking at the effects of uh, when parents uh, do struggle with accessing enough diapers, which um, I realized uh, is about one in three parents in the United States uh, struggle to provide enough diapers for their children. 
And there are dire consequences of this. I talked to several fathers who um, diaper need led to incarceration. Keegan, uh, one of the dads I describe in the book, was in jail for three months because he had to write a hot check because he came to a point where he couldn't afford both milk and diapers for his baby. And I'll never forget, he said, I didn't make a good decision, but I made the right one. And he said, my baby needed diapers and milk. And, you know, that Keegan's story has such a resonance now after George Floyd, because I think of all the dads that I spoke to who said, nothing's going to keep me away from my children except being dead or in jail. And knowing that George Floyd, like Keegan, uh, was a black father of three. Um, so that inspired the project, the current project on diapers. That's what I'm doing right now. Are you going to get into the difference between disposable and uh, uh, reusable diapers and how that might have some uh, economic symbolism? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I actually just finished an article manuscript that's entitled, Why Don't They Just Use Cloth? Um, I'm studying, along with parents who struggle with diaper need, I'm studying diaper bankers. So there are about 400 diaper banks across the country, more every day, um, work much like food banks where they distribute diapers um, to people in need. And that's one of the most common questions they get is why don't they just use cloth? Um, and so a lot of my work looks at why using cloth diapers is actually prohibitively difficult in poverty. Um, daycares often won't take them. Um, you can't wash them in most public laundry facilities. Most low-income parents don't have, and not even in-home washers and dryers, but many of them don't even have homes. And then also just the, the stigma that's often attached to cloth diapers. And then when it comes to disposable ones, not having enough of the right size and just continuously having to buy the next size bigger is uh, economically prohibitive. It sounds like you know something about that. Um, and and the environmental impacts too, right? Yes. Um, so the, the working title of the next book is Diaper Dilemmas. And I think it you know, really is a dilemma because um, we know that uh, disposable diapers, there's some evidence to suggest that um, you know, they're the largest source of post-consumer waste in the United States. Um, every disposable diaper, most, uh, but you know, if, if your parents ever use disposable diapers on you, they're still sitting intact in a landfill right now. Um, so there's a big environmental impact. Um, and, you know, I think kind of, but then how do you, how do you balance that, right? How do you promote access to diapers for parents who, for a lot of reasons, can't feasibly use cloth? Um, and then, but how do you address the environmental issues? So those are just some of the, the dilemmas that, that I'm addressing in the current work. Well, I look forward to reading it and having you on the show again. It, uh, it seems like a perfect fit for us to talk about. Well, I look forward to it, Michael. And I just want to say I appreciate you doing this. And these were great questions that just really get to the heart of Essential Dads. So thank you. Well, thank you, Dr. Randalls. And again, this is uh, New Books and Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. I look forward to talking with you all soon.